0: Hello, guys. T here with a little bed crime bite for you. I wanted to share some new information that we have about what law enforcement found when they searched Brian Koberger's apartment in Pullman, Washington on December 30th, hours after he was arrested in northeastern Pennsylvania. Thanks to newly released legal documents, we now know that chemical tests for blood were done on over 60 reddish-brown stains at Koberger's apartment. They show that a reddish-brown stain on an uncased pillow, as well as a brown irregular drip found on the mattress cover, both came back as preliminarily positive for blood. Those samples from the apartment rented by Koberger were collected for further testing at the Idaho State Crime Lab. Another dark red spot on the kitchen counter near the sink was unable to be tested at the scene but was collected for further analysis the vast majority of these spots were negative for the possibility of being blood. Documents also show the Washington State University Police Department was advised at 10.38 p.m. on December 29th that Koberger had been arrested at his parents' Pennsylvania home and a law enforcement team from Idaho was on its way to sit at Koberger's apartment near WSU, and at his office on the campus there, until search warrants of those locations were served by university police. Then, at approximately 7.15 a.m. the next day, Koberger's apartment was searched by law enforcement, and the documents say they cleared each room of the residence and noticed the apartment was sparsely furnished, fairly empty of belongings, including no shower curtain in the bathroom and the trash cans appeared empty. That's not surprising. I think most people empty their trash before they go on vacation. Video documentation of the apartment was also conducted. Authorities found a round padlock In the entryway closet of Koberger's apartment that law enforcement recognized as being used for storage facilities, a key to the lock was located on the TV stand. Koberger had a storage closet at the complex assigned to him. The door to the closet was ajar. And the closet appeared to be empty. Law enforcement waited for a search warrant to be amended to include that storage unit before they searched it for possible trace evidence and possible DNA evidence. Authorities then went to Koberger's office where he had just completed his first semester as a PhD student. While executing the search warrant, they found Koberger's desk was empty interesting. Nothing was seized from the office. Makes it seem like Koberger maybe knew that he wasn't going to be going back there. On January 10th of 2023, Koberger's defense team showed WSU law enforcement a piece of paper signed by Brian Koberger granting his attorneys permission to enter his apartment, to remove the WSU office keys, that had been sitting on the TV stand. Defense attorneys also found and took a receipt from a cupboard in the bathroom, as well as paperwork items from the living room. And on January 19th, his defense team asked again to go to his apartment with another letter signed by Koberger, asking them to gather some of his belongings. The defense team removed a flat-screen TV a computer monitor, a small box of miscellaneous papers and receipts, a laundry basket that was full of books, and a medium-sized box whose contents police couldn't see. And I just want to remind you of what the police took from Koberger's apartment. Night trial type Black Love, Walmart receipt with Dickie's tag, two Marshalls receipts, dust container from a vacuum, eight possible hair strands taken from broom, Amazon Fire TV stick with cord and plug, possible hair, animal hair strand taken from under mouse pad, possible hair taken from shower tile, possible hair taken from shower drain, possible hair taken from uncased pillow, and a computer tower from the bedroom desk. I also want to share some tidbits from the latest installment from reporter Howard Bloom of Airmail News magazine, and in it he's talking about the more than six-week investigation that led to Brian Koberger's arrest. He starts with a discussion of the white Hyundai Elantra that was caught on surveillance camera footage in the vicinity of the King Road house in the pre-dawn minutes subsequent to the crime. Bloom talks about how the police dubbed that vehicle suspect vehicle one, even though there was never a suspect vehicle two, which I find very funny because a lot of us were wondering what does this mean? Where is suspect vehicle two? If there's a suspect vehicle one, then there must be another one. There wasn't. Loom talks about how they had a problem, though, with the surveillance footage because of the quality of the images. They were flickering, recorded in varying light. The pixels had captured a fast-moving white car, but... That was about all the local police could say for sure. I think it's interesting that Koberger was speeding out of Moscow, Idaho that morning of all the times when you don't want to stand out on surveillance footage or risk being pulled over by the police. And then in this police cam footage, he's sort of trying to pretend that he's such a law follower and that he didn't understand the law, when really this guy is going to be a major lawbreaker, allegedly. Bloom describes the surveillance footage of the car as promising, but far from conclusive, and says that those videos were swiftly dispatched to Building 27958A, Pod E, Quantico, Virginia, That was where the forensic examiners of the Image Analysis Unit of the FBI Operational Technology Division worked their magic using a bit of software that had been originally developed for a secret Defense Department outfit nestled deep in the clandestine heart of the deep state, the Irregular Warfare Technical Support Directorate. With the click of a few computer keys, the program searches through a staggering inventory of cars until it ultimately, according to the confident government description, identifies the make and model of the vehicle in a still image. And in this case, it worked like a charm. Bloom says, or more precisely, three charms, the FBI forensic examiner first deduced That suspect vehicle one was a 2011 to 2013 Hyundai Elantra. Then, upon further review, to use the chagrined phrase of the candid Idaho authorities, he decided the mysterious Hyundai might very well be a 2011 through 2016. And when he poured over the image of a car consistent with the Hyundai near the crime scene, that was caught on camera not long after the crime, he deduced that it was a 2014 to 2016 Hyundai. So Bloom says he cast a pretty broad net, and he cast it three times to boot. The other problem for the investigators was that uh, the pixels in the video footage of suspect vehicle one as it was flying by they could not get a legible shot of the license plate, and they couldn't even offer a guess. They had no idea. The other problem was that there wasn't a single legible image of the driver. So these agents at the Bureau tried all sorts of photographic tricks to try to pull a face from the blur, but they said in the end, the best they could decipher was a dark, murky shadow Hovering over the steering wheel. Then on November 25th, 12 days after the crime, the Moscow authorities asked local authorities to be on the lookout for a white Hyundai Elantra in the area. And Bloom writes that four long days passed. Before the campus, police at Washington State University got around to hunting for the vehicle. The problem was that nearly 30,000 other Hyundai Elantras were in the area, apparently. But even though it took four days, at last a WSU police officer did get around to checking out whether there were any white Hyundai Elantras registered at the university, and that occurred on November 29th, which apparently was a tranquil Tuesday night on the campus because the university was in the middle of its Thanksgiving break. And then at 12.28 a.m., not even a half hour into the start of his midnight to 8 a.m. graveyard shift, Officer Daniel Tiengo took advantage of this lull to catch up on a stack of paperwork, and at the top of it was the bulletin from the Moscow police asking people to look for that white Hyundai Elantra. Apparently, right after he read the bulletin, he started tapping away at his computer, and a name appeared on the screen. Brian Koberger, a grad student, living in a university apartment compound on Northeast Valley Road, and he owned a 2015 Elantra. So after Officer Tiango found this, he passed it on to his late-night patrol sergeant, Curtis Whitman. And Whitman is the guy who went out and found the Elantra. At 12.58 a.m., exactly a half hour after Officer Tiango had identified a possible owner of the suspect car, Whitman was staring through the nighttime darkness at a white Hyundai sitting in a graduate apartment complex parking lot. So now they had a license plate number to go with the car owner's name. This is when Corporal Brett Payne, the 32-year-old former military policeman who had been handpicked by Moscow police chief James Fry to lead the investigation stared at a screenshot of Koberger's driver's license photograph. And as he stared at the photograph, Payne ticked off all the similarities between Brian Koberger and the masked intruder that survivor Dylan Mortensen had briefly seen inside the house. White male? Check. Six feet? Check. 185 pounds, check, and the clincher, Koberger, he decided, possessed bushy eyebrows. So at this point, Payne decided to obtain the phone call records for Brian Koberger's cell phone number, and he did that on December 23rd. This is when a guy named Benjamin Dean an FBI special agent on the Salt Lake City field office's cellular analysis survey team stepped into the picture. He took the cell phone tower records that had stored the pings from Koberger's phone, and he came up with an itinerary of the suspect's travels before and after the crime. This is when the Moscow police meticulously plotted all the comings and goings on a series of maps. And at a glance, the new evidence seemed very incriminating. Coburger was placed near the King Road house immediately before the crime, and later hightailing it away from the scene of the crime in the pre-dawn hours. Howard Bloom sort of pokes a hole at this evidence by pointing out that the cell phone towers, cast a wide net. Their range can be as broad as 14 miles, and in a town like Moscow, that takes in a lot of territory. Bloom points out that being in the vicinity of the house at 1122 King Road is not the same as being at an exact address. So we can be sure that Koberger's defense attorneys are definitely going to attack the cell phone tower data. The article goes on to describe how Koberger got in his white Hyundai Elantra and began driving toward El Brightsville, Pennsylvania, and an FBI surveillance task force followed him covertly. Bloom goes on to describe the one thing that they found at the house where the perpetrator had made an amateur mistake, and that is the tan leather sheath that was left at the crime scene. At first, the authorities, according to Bloom, exulted, this was the break they were hoping for, as in, now we've got them. However, Bloom says, they were wrong. Once again, they were too quick off the mark. So, according to Bloom, the consumer DNA kits that are sold in the local CVS need about 750 to 1,000 nanograms to find out all they need to know about you, and that's not a lot. It's smaller than a speck of floating dust. He writes, a single nanogram is as heavy as a breeze. It weighs a few trillionths of a pound. There's nothing to it. Bloom says that forensic teams routinely wind up with only about a hundred or so nanograms of DNA at crime scenes, and yet scientists can work their magic and even use that microscopic amount of genetic evidence to nail criminals. Apparently, in this case, though, the DNA on the sheath, authorities will later say, was less than 100 nanograms, a whole lot less, a mere fraction, apparently a single nanogram, nothing more than a handful of microscopic-sized cells. Bloom writes, and I quote, in total, according to knowledgeable sources, about 20 cells. Maybe they whispered and even fewer. The DNA sample was as small as a fragment of a speck balanced on the head of a tiny pin. End quote. Bloom says it had the Iowa crime lab stymied and it was a scientific challenge beyond their capabilities, but it was not beyond the capabilities of the Othram lab. Bloom describes OTHROM as a gleaming, cutting edge genetics laboratory in a suburban high-tech corridor just north of Houston, Texas. And if it wasn't for Othram Labs, the secrets hidden in that DNA on the tab of the sheath might forever have remained an unfathomable mystery. So the detectives were really excited about Othram Labs, but suddenly their hopes were sort of dashed because Koberger, they had discovered, was in none of the readily accessible public DNA databases. Even if Authram could manage to chart a genetic schematic from the tiny amount of DNA on the button snap, there was no way to connect it directly to Brian Koberger. But then somebody had a eureka moment And a new path suddenly emerged. Detectives decided to steal garbage from the Coburgers' home. In Pennsylvania, they dubbed it the Great Trash Robbery. And the target was the neatly bagged garbage that had been deposited in the bins outside the white two story home that the Coburgers inhabit. In Albrightsville, Pennsylvania, Bloom writes, in the dead of the night, Noel, I guess he's the detective, tiptoed in and made off with his treasure trove. Later that same day, a special FedEx package, deceptively marked medical material, was sent to the Othram lab, and that's when the scientists quickly went to work. They extracted the material from the trash that they received, And they used a piece of equipment called the Nova Sec 6000. So they were plotting specific genetic sequences. And apparently, when they shared this information with the Idaho Crime Lab, alarm bells started ringing. They matched the speck of DNA on that sheath to Michael Koberger, Brian Koberger's father. And the geneticist had found an indisputable link. At least 99.9998% of the male population would be expected to be excluded from the possibility of being the suspect's biological father. I find this to be an absolute miracle that they had such a small amount of DNA and Othram Labs was able to make the connection. As soon as that connection was made, on December 29th, that's when they issued an arrest warrant for Brian Koberger, and the next day at 1.30 a.m., they stormed the Koberger family home in Pennsylvania. And you may recall that this is when Koberger was found wide awake in the kitchen area dressed in shorts and a shirt, wearing latex medical type gloves, and he was taking his personal trash and putting it into separate Ziploc baggies. If that doesn't look like a guilty person, I don't know what does. I find all of this this puzzle of circumstantial evidence extremely powerful and strong, but it doesn't matter what I think. It's gonna matter what the jurors think. Until the next time on Bed Crime Stories. Police department, search warrant, come to the door. So in this newly released video, you can't see much. Officers redacted quite a bit of the footage to preserve their case against him, but you can see them enter his apartment and file away a few things. From an unsealed search warrant, we know